And please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16. Last week we took a week off, as it were, um, to consider thanksgiving and the character of thankfulness, if you recall. That the character of thankfulness is, in so many ways, um, uniquely Christian because we have both the right spirit of true thanksgiving for what we have, but also the right object of our thanks, which is the true and living God. Well, this week we're back in 1 Corinthians. Um, two weeks ago, we finished 1 Corinthians 15. We've been walking through it now for, for a long time, better than a year. And we are in the final chapter in 1 Corinthians now, 1 Corinthians 16. This week we have next week, um, and then after next week we'll have a few topical messages on Christmas, and then we'll be stepping into 1 Samuel. And we'll start 1 Samuel in the morning. We just began 1 Thessalonians in the evening. So uh, I try to always have one Old Testament and one New Testament going. And so we'll have our New Testament in the evening and our our Old Testament um, in the morning. And as we step into 1 Corinthians 16 today, the title of the message, Worship Through Giving. We come to a passage where Paul instructs the church concerning giving to the needs of fellow believers. There, There are several types of giving in the scriptures that believers are commanded to take part in. The most, we might say the most prevalent or the most consistent form of giving uh, that we might experience, the most consistent is the, the financial support of the church itself. The regular giving to support the needs of the ministry. God has ordained that the men whom he has called to teach and lead the local church should be cared for by those who benefit from his ministry. We talked about this in depth way back in 1 Corinthians 9. And there Paul said this in verse 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And the principle as we presented it in 1 Corinthians 9 was this, that those who are personally and spiritually benefited by a man who devotes his time and his effort to the accurate exposition and the diligent communication of the Word of God, they are responsible to minister to him by meeting his physical needs. This is one type of giving which God's people are expected to participate. Another type of giving that believers are instructed to participate in is the giving to the poor and the needy. Giving to the poor was an essential element, particularly of the Jewish faith. It was written into the law of God in um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that God's people were to have a hand that was open to the needy. Those that would come into the land, they were intended, it was expected that they would show great hospitality, that they would give them a place to stay, that they would feed them, that they would meet their needs. This was something that was, was deeply rooted in Jewish culture. We see that as it finds its way into the New Testament as well. We see how um, in the New Testament there was the, the giving to the temple and the giving to the needy and, and particularly those uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, those who, who desired people to see them um, and think that they were spiritual, would give great sums of money to the poor and to the needy, would give great sums of money to the temple, hoping that people would think them something very special, something more spiritual because of the great sums of money that they 
gave. And so rooted in Jewish culture was this idea of giving to the poor, but it wasn't a wrong idea. Though, though the Pharisees and the Sadducees, of course, had the wrong perspective when they did it, it was right. It was good. And as the early Jewish Christians sought to reconcile this new faith, this newfound Christianity, with what they had always learned in the law, one of the things they recognized immediately was that the ministry of the servants of God to the poor and to the needy was a ministry that must continue. In, excuse me. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, when Paul is giving his testimony of being commissioned by the apostles to take the gospel to the Gentiles, he talked about getting saved and, and then uh, not going down to Jerusalem for a time. And he didn't go to Jerusalem for a time because um, the reputation that he had. And then when he finally ended up in Jerusalem, he says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. The apostles commanded him that as he went to the Gentiles that they should remember the poor. And, he, and as Paul was writing to the Galatian believers, he said, and, and I told you this, I forwarded this on to you. Remember the poor. The poor were to be remembered. A natural outworking of our faith. But there's another type of giving. One which is taught just as often in the Scriptures, but which we perhaps don't consider very often ourselves, and that is giving to the believers that are around us. Consider Proverbs 14.31 as it relates to the poor. Proverbs says, He that oppresseth the poor reproacheth his maker, but he that honoreth him hath mercy on the poor. Proverbs 19.17 says this, He that hath pity on the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given, he will pay him again. Consider Proverbs 21, verse 13. Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. One more this morning. Proverbs 29, 7. The righteous considereth the cause of the poor, but the wicked regardeth not to know it. And it is within the context of all of these Old Testament scriptures that we see a subset of the poor and needy that are especially important to God. And it is those poor and needy who are fellow servants of God. In the Old Testament, it was commanded by God that God's people Israel would never fail, never fail to help a brother in need. And in the New Testament, it is likewise expected that God's people, the church, would never fail to support a brother or sister in Christ who is in need. And this is the element of giving that Paul speaks of here in 1 Corinthians 16. He speaks of giving to the needs of the brethren. The expectation that you and I would be regularly prepared to meet the needs of God's people when they arise. So let's take a look this morning in 1 Corinthians 16. Follow along with me. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Only the first four are really pertaining to this, but we'll go through verse 12. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him that there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, 
them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia, and it may be that I will abide, yea, in winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effectual, a great door, excuse me, and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time. But he will come when he shall have convenient time. So we consider this morning these first four verses as, as Paul exhorts the church to lay aside money for the brethren, for the church that is at Jerusalem. The context for this collection is taught quite clearly in the Bible. Acts 11.29 tells us this, Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. The believers who lived in Judea, specifically in Jerusalem, had been greatly persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. These believers had lost their jobs. They had lost their inheritance. They had lost their families. They were social pariahs. They were outcasts with little or no expectation of support, not only from the, the communities in which they lived, but even from their families. When they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, indicating that they had received the word of the gospel with gladness and with faith, they were immediately cast out of their societies and oftentimes cast out of their families. And in fact, this is still going on today. I have a, a good friend who is a missionary to the Jews and he just got back from Israel not long ago and he met a young man there who um, he had met the first time he went to Israel and, and struck up a conversation with him again and, and asked him if he could give him a, a Hebrew New Testament. Well, the, the Jews, Orthodox Jews, do not accept the New Testament. They do not believe the New Testament is valid uh, as revelation from God. And yet this young man looked at him and said, I already have one. He, said, he told him this in English. He said, I already have one. And he, he was, began speaking about how he, he regularly likes to interact with Christians and ask Christians questions. And he has a, 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 a second Facebook account set up that his parents don't know about where he interacts with Christians because if his parents found out that he was interacting with Christians, he would be disowned. If his parents found out that he was interested in the Christian faith, he would be greatly um, disciplined for uh, such thinking. And this was very similar to what was happening in Judea at the time of the early church, except perhaps heightened at the time. These people were cast out of their communities. They were cast out of their families. They were very poor. This form of indirect persecution made life very difficult for the Christians of Judea and they were hurting terribly. So the church at Antioch, which was the church that sent out Paul and Barnabas and then likewise the church that sent out Paul and Silas, they determined to take a collection to meet the needs of these Christians in Judea. And they did so. 
and they sent this collection by the hand of Paul and Barnabas. That was the first time. Paul had determined to do the same thing in the churches throughout the world. Remember the first uh, journey that Paul and Barnabas took didn't go too far from home. It hit Derby and Lystra and Iconium and, and some of those areas, but it didn't go into Galatia. They didn't go into Asia and they didn't go into Macedonia or Achaia. And so on the second journey where Paul went with Silas and Timothy, we're learning about that a little bit on, on Sunday evenings with our Thessalonian series, um, they went farther. They ended up in Macedonia. They ended up in Achaia. They ended up in Asia. They went to Philippi, they went to Corinth, they went to Thessalonica, they went to Athens, they went to Ephesus. And so now Paul was going to do the same thing with those churches that he did with the churches in the, in the other regions that they had visited. He was going to ask them to take up a collection for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. And he says this in verse 1. We read it. Take a look at it with me. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to do, uh, excuse me, to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. So verse 1 tells us that Paul had given commandment in the region of Galatia, which was well east of Corinth's own region of Achaia, to gather a collection there. And then he would come and make sure it was done, make sure it was collected, and then get it to Jerusalem, whether he would take it or, he would, or someone from the church would take it. He reiterated this command for the church of Corinth. They too would, would be commanded and expected to lay up money for the benefit of the believers in Jerusalem. And please take special note of the context within which Paul is speaking here. He's not teaching specifically about money for their own functions. This is not about giving to the church. This message is not about giving to your church. We, we had one of those in 1 Corinthians 9. I've got uh, uh, those sheets on the back uh, on top of the giving box, our philosophy of giving. If you want to know information, you can always ask me. But that's not what this message is about. This message is about giving to the needs of believers. This is the context within which Paul is preaching here. And he says this in verse 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. The first concept that Paul commanded in regard to this giving to believers was that it was to be on the first day of the week. Now, this is not law. This was custom. We come together on the first day of the week, do we not? Sunday is technically the first day of the week. And the reason why we come together on the first day of the week is by and large because church tradition has ordained that the first day of the week is the day upon which God's people meet. There's really no reason other than that, except that this was how this was the day that the church traditionally has met on. The Jews met on a different day of week, if you recall. The Jews still meet on a different day of the week. They meet on Saturday. That would be their Sabbath day. In the Old Testament, God clearly commanded, it's one of the Ten Commandments, to honor the Sabbath day, to remember the Sabbath day, and to keep it holy, to set apart that seventh day, that last day of the week, in order to be a day of rest and a day of remembrance, a day of sanctification unto the Lord. And as the New Testament church began to function, they recognized that the important day among God's people was not necessarily the, the seventh day anymore as much as it was the first day of the week. The first day of the week was the day upon which Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
The first day of the week is a sign of beginnings, of something new. It's a sign of the initiation of, of a new program. And so the first day of the week became customarily, traditionally, the day upon which Christians would meet. However, there is no New Testament expectation concerning which day we are to meet. In fact, Colossians clearly teaches us that whether or not we regard certain days above others, we regard Sabbath days or not, we regard new moons or not, that these things are not necessary to our Christian faith. And so we meet on Sunday and it's traditional and it's good and it's fine. And they did as well. And the reason why they they perhaps had a regular day is because while maybe there's no designation of a specific day in Scripture, structure is very important. Is it not in any meeting? Structure, organization dictates that God's people choose a regular and a consistent meeting time in order to facilitate corporate worship. So Paul is not placing upon the believers in in 1 Corinthians 16 a command that they must worship on the first day of the week, but rather he is instructing them about giving within the context of that which he knows they do. He knows they come together on the first day of the week. So he tells them, hey, on the first day of the week, when you come together, I'd like you to do something for me. And what he commands is that every believer in the church lay aside a portion of what they have earned that week. And notice the scale that Paul uses to determine how much a person should give. As God hath prospered him. To the degree that God has blessed you over and above your needs, be liberal in your giving to the needs of others. When all of your bills are paid and you have provided shelter and clothing and food for your family, take that which is left, and that is the degree to which God has prospered you above that which you need, and give generously of that which God has prospered to the needs of other believers who have not. That's the principle that, that Paul espouses here. And Paul's intent in this regular offering was that there would not be a big call for money when he arrived, but rather there would be a a steady, systematic collection of money in preparation for his arrival. Now, there may have been uh, a few reasons why Paul asked for this. First, uh, we're all more capable of giving a little bit over a long period of time than we are giving a lot over a little bit of time. Are we not? This this just makes sense from from a, a logistic standpoint. I can't imagine that people back 2,000 years ago were all that different from us when it comes to uh, how money management is concerned. And so it makes sense that he would encourage that in order that that the church would be encouraged to uh, give a little bit more to the needs of God's people. Another reason, however, might be more spiritual in nature. Humans have an inborn tendency for one-upmanship, do they not? and an inborn tendency to want to compare themselves to others in order to gauge their own spirituality. The anything you can do, I can do better type mindset. And while this attitude is perhaps good and proper in its right context, if you're um, 
running a business or if you're playing sports or whatever the case may be, uh, perceived spirituality is not a context within which we want to have a one-upmanship type mindset. When we try to convince people uh, of our spirituality, much less being spiritually superior to them by one-upping other believers in an area of devotion or an area of virtue, that action goes from being a manifestation of spirituality, of love to the Lord, to a manifestation of sinful pride. And so perhaps Paul wanted to avoid, particularly in this church, what church are we talking about here? Corinth. What are some of the ways that Paul has had to instruct this church? Had to instruct a man in the church to stop fornicating with his mother-in-law. He had to instruct the people of the church to, um, to start having right sexual relations with one another uh, within the context of marriage. He had to instruct the people of the church to quit comparing themselves among themselves. To quit trying to say, I'm, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. I'm better than you. I'm more spiritual than you. They were all messed up on their understanding of spiritual gifts. They were all messed up on their understanding of giving. They're, 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 this church is not a church where Paul can just say, hey, I'm just going to give you the basics and you can, you can figure it out from there. This church was confused. And so perhaps Paul didn't want to put them in a place where they were going to, to have another area where they could try to one-up one another. Perhaps this is what Paul was trying to avoid. And so he says, every week when you come together, put a little bit of money aside according to the degree that the Lord has prospered you for that week. And in doing so, when I come, we're not going to have a big offering. The offering will be there ready for it, us and then we'll get it where it needs to go. And that's what he says in verse 3. He says this, When I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. Paul was determined that he was going to be upright in this. It's very important, of course, for Christian testimony that we are always upright in that area of giving and the area of finances. Paul knew that as well. And so he says, whoever you approve, that person can take the money to Jerusalem. He wasn't asking them to give it to him. He was saying whoever. And he says in verse 4, if, if I'm going that way and you want them to go with me, uh, all, all the better. But his command was to choose out from the church a true and honest and a diligent person to handle this money and to take it to Jerusalem. And he says this, uh, as I mentioned, if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. If it's appropriate, if it's fitting that Paul would go as well, then they will accompany him on the journey. We're going to apply in just a few minutes. We'll, go, we'll get through the rest of this passage before we do so. So bear with me and we'll be right back uh, to this idea in just a couple of minutes. Verses 5 through 12 are somewhat secondary in nature. Uh, chapter 16, Paul is just wrapping things up, and this is one of his wrap-up texts. Uh, there, I, I, could, I could get a message from it, but there's really no need to do so. Uh, in verses 5 and 6, Paul assures them that he will come and he will visit them, and quite possibly he will remain with them through the winter. It's before Pentecost, so it's still near the beginning of the year, but he is looking ahead and, and says that he might... Um, stay with them for the winter. However, for the time being, he had been doing work in Ephesus where he would plan to stay, he says, until Pentecost because a door of ministry had been opened up to him there. But along with that door of ministry, there had been many adversaries. 
Such is often the case in ministry. Every time a door opens unto us, there are people inspired by the wicked one who will desire to hinder you in your efforts to serve the Lord, in your efforts to spread the gospel. There will be great hindrances if you commit yourself to give to the needs of God's people. There will be efforts, great adversaries against your desire to meet those needs. One of those might be materialism. That you can't meet the needs of others because you're so busy spending money on yourself above and beyond your needs that you just plain don't have any money to give. You've brought yourself to a place where you're, you're living uh, beyond your means and so there's nothing left with which to give to others. That's a device of our sinful nature. Something that Satan uses to keep us from being able to give to one another. Maybe it's reasonableness. Right? They, they can't pay me back. That's a lot of money. What are they going to do for me? Do they really deserve that? Maybe all these things float into our minds and Satan tempts us and convinces us that, you know what? We don't need to give to them. Let someone else give to them. Someone that has money to burn, right? Well, Paul was going through some adversaries right there in Ephesians, or in, in, in Ephesus. Adversaries to the open door that he had found. No matter what ministry effort we put our heart and our mind unto, if you serve God, expect opposition. Paul then gives instruction about the church's reception of two of Paul's fellow ministers. Paul's intent was that his fellow minister Timothy would visit them, and if he did, Paul was greatly desirous that they would receive him well. The reason why Timothy might have been fearful, he says in um, verse 10, Now if Timotheus comes, see that he may be with you without fear. The reasons why Timothy might have fear among them are, are perhaps many. We don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. Several commentators have, have posed different ideas, maybe uh, the same idea that we consider in, in uh, Timothy, where Paul says, let no man despise thy youth. Maybe it was an idea where, where Timothy was still a little bit insecure about his lack of experience or, or his youth in the ministry or his youth as a believer. Maybe it had something to do with uh, Timothy knowing the kind of people that were there in Corinth and Timothy being fearful of going there and, and having to see how they handle Paul's correction. I mean, could you imagine writing a letter like Paul wrote to, to Corinth and then Paul saying, yeah, Timothy, I'm going to send you before I get there. You let me know how they handled that. <laughs> Enjoy. Right? Let, let, let me know how that worked out. Well, we find out from 2 Corinthians that they handled it very well. But Timothy didn't know that. Paul didn't know how they'd handle it either. So maybe that was a part of the reason. But whatever reason, he says... Make sure that when Timothy's there, he can be there without fear. And then verse 11, let no man despise him. Conduct him forth in peace that he may come unto me. Be kind to him, help him out, conduct him forth, let him come, let him go, let him come back to me. In verse 12, Paul then turns his focus toward Apollos. You remember Apollos? Spoke about him just a couple minutes ago. In 1 Corinthians 1, there were four men that the church was fighting about as to whose doctrine they supported. It would be like today, people saying, well, I'm of Calvin, I'm of Lutheran, I'm of this, uh, uh, Luther, I'm of, I'm of whoever. They were saying, I'm of Paul, I, I follow Paul's doctrine. 
I'm of Apollos. I follow Apollos' doctrine. I'm of Cephas. I follow Peter's doctrine. Or I'm of Christ. I follow Christ's doctrine. They were fighting over who was following whose doctrine. And, and Paul said, is Christ divided? We're all preaching the same message. Don't lot yourself into a, a, a category where you're following a man. Follow Christ. Follow the Word of God. So Apollos was regarded very highly in the church. We know that from 1 Corinthians 1. And Paul knew that they'd want him to come. And he says at this time, Paulus has no intention of coming, but perhaps he will at a later date. We're going to finish there today, but, but I, I trust that this last little cleanup stuff won't sidetrack us from the application because that's where we're going to go now. We begin our time today speaking about the command by Jesus Christ among his disciples to love one another. And during our application today, I'd like to take some time to consider some of these concepts. And uh, we already mentioned that the da- one of the great dangers in the Christian life is a danger of allowing our materialism to strip us from the ability to give to others. This is a danger that's particularly powerful in our society because of debt. Because of how easy it is for us to go into debt. It's so easy for us to rack up debt and thereby withholding us, it really, it captures us, does it not? It shackles us to where we don't feel like we have any discretion with our finances because we are constantly having to pay for that which we have already purchased. And perhaps this was something that there was a great struggle with in the Corinthian church as well, perhaps not. But what I would warn you of is as we consider for just a few minutes the concept of giving to one another, materialism will be our greatest enemy today. Especially around this time of year as we consider Black Friday having just passed and Christmas coming. May I encourage you to be prudent as the Bible commands us and to recognize that that which God has prospered us with above and beyond our means to live is not intended to go toward our amusements. It's intended to go toward the needs of others. But consider with me what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if Ye love one another. One of the most foundational evidences that we are followers of Jesus Christ is that we have a deep-rooted determination to express to one another true and biblical love. Love is the foundation of every commandment we have as born-again Christians, so much so that Jesus Christ said, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is intended not just to be a piece of our lives, but it's intended to be the very fiber of our lives. It's intended to be the driving force that directs our lives. Love toward God and love toward one another. The book of 1 John is in large part a commentary on the book of John, particularly a commentary on chapters 13 through 17, as Jesus Christ is speaking to his disciples in a very personal setting. We've been going through 1 John for some time now on Tuesday evening, and just this past Tuesday evening, as we were talking about the love that God has toward us and the love that we're to have for God and the evidences of our Christian life, we we landed right here, did we not? On loving one another. 
And consider what we talked about quite a while ago in first, uh, in first John on Tuesday night. First John three verses 16 through 19 says this, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is what Jesus meant by love. Love is not a concept that can be properly manifested simply in kind words or in good intentions. May I say that again? Love is not a concept that can be properly manifested simply in kind words or in good intentions. Love has no definition but action. Love outside of action is dead, is empty. John tells us that the love that we are intended to manifest, not just toward family members, not just toward those who are in our immediate relations, but the love that we are intended to show one to another as believers, fellow believers in Christ, should compel us into absolutely unhypocritical love that is deeply sacrificial. So much so that John says, As Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, that is our example that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That is the extent to which our love for one another should go. That is the degree to which our love should be expressed. We ought to be willing to spend and be spent for one another. When dealing with brethren, when dealing with fellow believers... Concepts of inconvenience or manipulation or personal advantage should not play into the scenario. Then John gives an illustration in verse 17. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? When you as a believer see a fellow believer in true need and don't help them, or at least offer to help them, how can you say that you are walking in fellowship with the Lord? How can you say that you are doing what God wants you to do when you are not helping a believer in need? And the point, as John gives it in verse 18, is that love is not about what we say, but about what we do. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. James said it this way in James 2.16 as he spoke on works. One of you say unto them, Depart in peace. Be ye warm and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? What good is it if you tell a believer in need, I hope things work out for you. Pray for you. Right? I'll pray for you. But we don't help them when we can. Talk is cheap. Actions are genuine. So the question I ask of you this day is this. Are your hands open to brethren in need? 
Are you expressing biblical love to God through giving to God's people by willingly pouring out your... You know, maybe you find yourself where you don't have the money, where you don't have a lot coming in above what you need every month. Can you give of your time to that needy believer? Can you give of your priorities to that needy believer? As a church, we've had this situation come up two times. Only two in, in the, four, the three years that I've been here. Once, it was a needy family in the midst of our church for whom we took a collection. The second was for a needy missionary family whose wife had just hurt her back and we took a collection for them to help them meet their medical needs. One of our goals for 2015 will be to do a better job as a church doing this meeting the needs of God's people as they come up. But as individuals, this can be your privilege as well. When you learn of a need among your brethren, are you quick to try and meet that need, to fill that need? Are you, are you willing to offer? Are you willing to give up that tank of gas to bless another believer in Christ who needs a ride? Are you ready to offer some space in your home for that brother or sister that needs a place to stay? And the principle, as Paul gives it, is this. When a need arises according as God has blessed you or your family above your own legitimate needs, be willing to sacrifice to the needs of another. Instead of buying that morning coffee or those cookies or getting that new scarf or that new tool or whatever it might be, Perhaps set a little bit of money aside for that believer in need. You can give it anonymously. You can give it openly. It can be cash. It can be food. But the church has a big selfishness problem, does it not? We don't care about one another. At least not enough. We say we care about one another, but we don't act like it. We give when we have plenty to those in need. And then when those in need are no longer in need, it is expected that then they would begin giving to the needs of others. And perhaps it might be that the man who had plenty finds himself five years down the road being the man who is in need. And this is the intent of God's people. That we give when we have enough and the Lord provides for the needs of others through our giving And then perhaps there may come a day when someone needs to give to us because we don't have enough. And the Lord provides for us through their giving. And this is the design of God. It's not communal living. It's not socialism. It's not anything like that. Communal living is not motivated by love. It's motivated by equality. This is love living, where we identify the needs of brothers and sisters and we give of what we have, not of uh, everyone has, we give of what we have to meet their needs. Now, I know how this mindset has played itself out in my family. I know the ways that we personally seek to give and personally seek to bless. I don't know how it will play out in your own family. I don't. I can't tell you that. I can't tell you you need to give money. I can't tell you you need to give time. I can't tell you you need to give effort. But what I'm asking you is, do you love the brethren? And are you seeking to meet the needs of those who are in need? And we've talked about some hindrances to that. If we are 
allowing materialism to consume us, that might be a problem. If we are convinced that all we're ever all that ever happens to us is we're manipulated and used and we never we're, we're never recompensed, we're never thanked. Well, if that was part of the qualification, then we'd be in trouble. May I encourage you to take time to prayerfully develop a heart to give to the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. And to develop a heart that recognizes those needs, whether or not they're mentioned. And one more thing before we close. None of us wants to be that person in need. None of us wants to be that person that can't pay the electric bill or doesn't have enough gas to get from point A to point B. None of us wants to be that person who who is in need, but it may just be that you find yourself there. We say that God will provide for our needs, and He will, because He's promised to. But have you ever stopped to consider the ways that God has ordained for our needs to be provided? God has ordained for our needs to be provided first through work. That as a man exchanges his time and his knowledge and his labor for provision, he is experiencing one of the ways in which God has chosen to provide for us. He has given us health and he has given us strength so that we can work, we can earn our money, so that we can provide for our families and and meet the needs of others. God has also ordained for our needs to be provided for and met through savings. That as we have extra money that comes in, we set it aside for a time in which our need is evident. We save when we have plenty so that we have when we lack. But God has also ordained, and I believe 1 Corinthians 16 is very clear about this, as well as Galatians chapter 2. God has ordained for our needs to be provided through the generosity of other believers. Not to the exclusion of you getting out and working. You don't sit on your keister all day and then expect the church to provide for you. But, when there is a need, when you are in need, and you refuse to tell God's people, you might very well be yielding the means that God has chosen to provide for you. You might very well, in your pride and unwillingness to tell others about your need, you might be giving up the very means by which God has desired you to be provided for. Because we see in the scriptures throughout, particularly the New Testament, the example that God used believers to meet the needs of those in need. He used the collection of those who had to meet the needs of believers who didn't. And when you withhold from others the privilege of meeting your need, not only might you be refusing God's provision in your life, but you are also denying God's people the spiritual blessing of being used by God to meet your need. Now, notice what I left out of the equation. I'm concerned today by the amount of government assistance. I'm sure all of us are to one degree or another. I know some of us have needed that government assistance from time to time, and I'm not saying that it's, it's all inherently wrong, but what I'm saying is this. It's a shame 
that we will run to the government before we run to God's people. It's a shame that we have more faith in the system that is welfare than we do in fellow believers. It's a shame on two levels. Number one, and I think foremost, it's a shame on the believers that are unwilling to give. Because in most places you go into a church and you become active and involved in that church and people know you and love you and you fall into a time of need and you don't exactly have people lining up to give to you. And that's the wrong of our mindset of giving. But you know, that is also forced or brought about a mindset of receiving in a Christian's life where we're not even willing to allow the church to help us, to allow God's people to rally around us. And I'm concerned about that because I know, and we mentioned this on Tuesday night, that if we as God's people began truly loving one another as God's Word commands us to, we as a church would be so different from everything else around us. Our testimony would be so unique that it would just shine. It would shine so bright. Could you imagine what would happen in this country if God's church as a whole began obediently loving one another as Christ has called us to love, laying down our lives for the needs of the brethren? If we were willing to rally around one another, to be vulnerable enough to say when we have a need and to be loving enough to meet the needs of others, Could you imagine how this church, much less the church, would change? And what a blessing it is to be a child of God. It's so exciting to serve a Savior who provides. How does God want to use you to supply the needs of a fellow brother or sister in Christ? who is in need. What can God do with your resources if you would only yield them to Him? How could God meet your needs if you would only be willing to submit to His ordained method of support? I encourage you to consider these things as we close. I don't know where you are. I don't know how you feel on this. But we know what the Bible says evidences. We know what the Bible commands. And let's allow what the Bible says about the relationship between one another in in the church to dictate how we interact with one another.